All right. James chapter 1 is where we're going to be as we continue our journey through the letter that, that James writes. And he is writing it, I might remind you from last week, to a group of people who have been dispersed. They've been sent out of Jerusalem. The early church, you might recall in our study through Acts, began there in Jerusalem at the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came down. The church was given the dunamos, the dynamite power that Jesus talked about. And so the church began there with thousands of people coming to know the Lord. But what also began shortly thereafter is the persecution of the church. The church began to have pressure applied to it. And so as a result, many people were driven away from their homes, away from their families, away from their loved ones, some even losing their lives. And so James is writing this letter to the 12 tribes that are scattered or the diaspora. Some of you might have heard that phrase before. And so he's writing this letter and what he writes about, it shouldn't be a surprise to us, is uh, trials. <laughs> when you face trials is what he's going to talk about. And what we shared was that God allows trials in our life, whereas Satan, on the other end, he wants to tempt us. And these are a very similar word in the Greek, but there are very different uh, hearts behind the word. And so what we find is God's desire in a trial is actually to mature us and to grow us and to get us to a deeper relationship with him, to have more faith in his faithfulness to us. Now, Satan, on the other hand, he wants to bring temptations along to actually do what he does best, and that is to seek and to kill and to destroy every single thing in your life. And so he brings temptations in with the hope of being able to do that in the midst of a trial. Now, what James says in verse 2 about these trials, and this is uplifting, he says, when, not if you fall into various trials, you need to count them as all joy. Right, aren't you glad you came? Let's, let's rejoice in trials. And so immediately we have to wonder, how on earth can we have joy in the midst of a trial? Well, one way that we can have joy is knowing that God's going to see us through it. Knowing that he is going to grow us through it to the other side. And he's actually going to mature us, is the word we talked about, as we go. Now, as we wrapped up last time, we looked at one of Satan's favorite areas to attack, and that is... Uh, my wallet, the piggy bank, my 401k, investments, all those things Satan loves to attack because he knows if there's an area of our life we're going to struggle to believe God's going to take care of us in, it's finances. And so the Lord encourages us through the pen of James to trust him even in the midst of financial struggles because what is ultimately the ultimate treasure that's out there is people. It's the eternal relationships that we're going to take with us for all of eternity. And so this is the encouragement that James starts with in his letter. And we're going to pick up in verse 12 this morning, where prayerfully we'll finish the first chapter. And James says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, James, you might remember from our intro, is the half-brother of Jesus. And so as the half-brother of Jesus, he'd probably heard one or two of his teachings. And one of those that James continually goes back to is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. I bring that up because if you go back to Matthew chapter 5, you'll see the Beatitudes. And what Jesus says in those first verses is, blessed is the man 
fill in the blank. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And so what you find is little brother is now taking that same kind of an idea. And he says here in verse 12, blessed is the man who endures temptation. Now that word blessed, when we studied through Matthew a little over a year ago, we talked about this, that it means, oh, how happy. Oh, how happy is the man who endures temptations. Now you might wonder, how in the world can I be happy in the midst of a trial? How is that possible? And so what I want to do is turn with you to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul, speaking of happiness and doing the will of the Lord, he says in verse 16 of 1 Thessalonians 5, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, I think it's important to note, because I've studied that and I've been tripped up by that, that how on earth can I be thankful for everything? And the reality is there's some things that I cannot be thankful for, but that's not the word Paul uses. He says, in everything, give thanks. You see, there, there's certain things that we cannot be thankful for, but I can be thankful in. In this circumstance, in this spot, I can be thankful, knowing that the Lord will never leave me nor forsake me, knowing that he's going to grow me through this. I may not be thrilled about the diagnosis or the broken relationship or the loved one that's left me too soon, but I can be thankful in this situation, knowing that God will never leave me. Now, the key word here that James starts off with is this word, endure. And when you go through the New Testament over and over again, this word will pop up, endure, endure, endure. Why? Because God knows we're going to have a lot to endure. But for the one who endures, he will receive the crown of life. This is the promise for that one that endures. Now, if you study through the New Testament, you'll find that five different crowns are mentioned. And for the sake of time, I don't have it right now to talk about all five crowns. But it's at least my belief that that's not an all-inclusive list. The writers of the New Testament picked out five. But I believe that our God is big enough that he's got many more in store for us. But there are five that you can study. You can use the Google machine and check that out on your own. But those crowns are things that can actually be earned in this life. That there's an opportunity that we have as believers, after we already come to Christ, to be able to earn crowns. Now, immediately, there's going to be some red flags come up. Like, so I can earn my salvation? No, no. That's not what we're talking about. Salvation is a free gift of Jesus Christ. He laying his life down for you and I is the only way. He is the truth. He is the life. We have to first believe in him. But as we come to belief, as I've confessed with my mouth and I believe in my heart that Jesus is the Christ and God raised him from the dead, after I get past that step, then through this life, what I do, what I do actually matters. The way I conduct myself actually matters. And as a result, when we arrive there eternally, he is going to present those who have endured. In this particular case, James is talking about through the trial haven't turned their back on God and say, I can't take anymore, but the one that endures will receive the crown of life. Now, there are some that will say, look, I, I'm not doing this for a crown. Well, praise the Lord. None of us are. But I will tell you, when I stand before Jesus and he wants to give me a crown, I am not going to say, no, thank you, sir. Right? We are going to accept that crown and say, Lord, I don't deserve it. Because the reality is, you don't. 
But here's the beautiful thing about the crowns that we receive. What we're told in Revelation is that we will actually stand there and take the crowns that he has given us and we will cast them back at his feet. We will lay those crowns back down before him and praise him for the God of the universe that he actually is. But over and over again, we are encouraged to endure through trials, through tribulations. Now, why does any of this matter, right? Why are, why are we spending so much time this morning on this? Matthew chapter 25 is where I'm going to turn really quickly. And in this spot, Jesus is sharing about the kingdom of heaven. This is how he starts the parable of the talents. He says, for the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he proceeds to share a parable about how people actually conduct themselves in this life, and they deal with the resources that God has put at their fingertips. And so for all that, I want to go down to verse 21. This is what the Lord says to those who have done well with what they've been given in verse 21. And his Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. I don't know about you, but if you have endured any kind of trial at all in your life, what a wonderful thing it's going to be to hear that. What a wonderful thing it's going to be to hear at the end. Well done, good and faithful servant. Because if you're anything like me, wired at all like me, when I'm in that spot and I'm up against it, you know what I want to do? Quit. I am ready to be done more than I would like to admit to you. But what the promise of the Lord is for that one who endures, for that one that continues, is to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Now enter into the joy of the Lord. And so this is the reason that the things that we do in this life actually matter. Now, verse 13, James continues and he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. And so now we have the disparity between trials and temptations. And what we find is that God allows trials in our life, but Satan comes along with temptations to trip us up, to make us fall. And typically these temptations occur in the midst of a bigger, larger trial. But the reality is for us, we can actually lose these crowns, not our salvation again. I want to be careful by saying that. But we can lose the crowns that we've gained by not remaining faithful, lacking faith or falling in temptation. And so the temptation comes in the midst of a trial that God has allowed. Now, what I mean by that, to give a very real example, is imagine you, you guys all have perfect relationships, so I'll focus on me. Imagine I had struggle in a relationship. And in the middle of this relationship struggle, I am, am struggling with this, and the Lord has allowed this in my life so I can work through some things, but I decided to just tap out. Because as I'm driving down Lincoln, I see a big old flashing light for Miller Lite. Oh, baby. This is, this is what I need to turn off to. And, and the reason for me to turn that direction is because I need some kind of a relief from that trial. I'm looking for a way out. I'm looking for something to ease the pain. I'm looking for some way to not have to think about and consider the things that I have struggled with in this relationship, in this particular area. And what typically happens is that temptation then leads to the next temptation, which leads to the next temptation, and it becomes full-born sin in my life. You see, this is what Satan does in the midst of a trial that God wants to actually grow us in. 
But what God's desire is not to do is to entice you. God doesn't allow, uh, he allows the trial, but he doesn't bring about the temptation. Satan's the one that knows the pressure points and where to push on us at. But with every single temptation, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, this is important for you to note, is that in the midst of those trials and every single temptation, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 13, Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. That in every trial, when a temptation comes about, God will give you an opportunity to escape. He will actually carve out an escape route for you to be able to get out of that particular situation. If you think about last week, I shared with you the life of Joseph, right? I mean, not exactly the way you'd want things to go when you're 17 years old. Your brothers uh, hating you so much, they want to actually uh, pretend that you're dead. They throw you in a pit. They sell you to Midian slave traders. Seems like some broken relationships. So here's Joseph. He's now in this terrible spot. What we looked at last week is through the end of this trial, as he survives this trial, he endures it, he actually is able to see his family saved because of his faithfulness. And what he tells his family in Genesis 50 is what you meant for evil, God actually intended for good so that many people might be saved. That's a beautiful way to end the story. But in the midst, you see there was temptation. And so early on in Joseph's life, he's now in slavery. He's in the house of Potiphar. And as he's there, uh, Mrs. Potiphar, she takes a liking to this little 17-year-old Hebrew boy. She's got eyes for him. She begins to come on to him. She starts to make advances on him. And then over and over again, she's trying to entice him and tempt him until finally it gets to be so much to bear, Joseph has to run. He's got to flee. And as he runs out of the house, she grabs a hold of his cloak and Joseph runs out naked. You ever felt that way when you run away from temptation? But here's the thing. God always gives us a path to escape the temptation. Now we can applaud Joseph and we should for his ability to endure. But do you realize it was becoming more than what he could actually endure? And so many times when we're in that spot, what we need to do is run. Get out of that spot. Get out of that situation because we don't, if you think about a 17-year-old boy, he doesn't have the ability to continue in that temptation. He had to flee. And as a result, it saved his life. And so God will always create a path, a way for us to be able to escape. Now, verse 14 But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Why is it that God hates sin? That hate is a strong word to use. And so I use it sparingly. But why does God hate sin? It's not because it's bad. He hates it because it's bad for us. It's destructive to us us. And it always brings about death every single time. It brings about death to relationships, death to happiness, death to health, and the list goes on and on until eventually it brings about death altogether. This is the result of sin. And whenever you're talking to a young person in particular, who, by the way, always think they're bulletproof, they never think they're going to stumble, I would encourage you to do this. Take them to the cross. If you want to know what sin ultimately does, 
take them into the gospel and to the cross where they can stand there and they can see the absolute perfect, the absolute perfect God of the universe hanging there on our behalf, beaten, tortured, spit upon. By who? By me. I'm the one. That's what my sin does. My sin says crucify him. Do away with this man. Over and over again, this is what our sin does. Now as a result of Jesus being there on the cross, here's the beautiful thing. What Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says is that the wages of sin is death. That's precisely what he was up to. Taking the wages, the, the cost of all my sin, all my shame, everything loaded upon him. It, it was all there upon his shoulders. But here's what I love about the Apostle Paul in verse 23. He doesn't end with the wages of sin is death. Although often we only remember that part of the verse at the end of the verse. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see the promise on the other side of that. Him taking all of our sin and all of our shame upon himself was the promise of eternal life. That's the beauty of it. And so taking people directly to the cross to see just what sin does, but what the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ can do in our life. Now, verse 16, as James continues, he says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Now, this verse might... Uh, recall your memory back to just a couple weeks ago when we wrapped up the letter to the Galatians. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, Paul also says, Do not be deceived, for God will not be mocked. He continues to say, For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. And so what we looked at is that God will not be, or do not be deceived. God is not going to be mocked. Don't be deceived in this spot. And we talked about the laws of sowing and reaping. You guys are Bible experts at this point, so you remember the three laws of sowing and reaping. I won't make you call them out. I'll remind you of them. The three laws to sowing and reaping were first, we, whatever we sow, we will also reap that same kind. In other words, you don't sow corn and raise tomatoes. That's ridiculous. And so that's the first law of sowing and reaping. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap that same kind that you sowed. Secondly is you always reap after you sow. You don't sow today. You don't go out and plant your garden today and have it pop up tomorrow. There's a time frame that has to take place for those things to actually grow out in the garden. And so the same is true in our spiritual journey. Now, thirdly and finally, you always reap more than you sow. Now that can be terrifying, depending on where you're sowing at. Because for all those that are sowing in the flesh, what, what James is saying and Paul was saying as well in Galatians is that wherever you sow, that's where you're going to reap. And so as I sow over and over again to my flesh, what happens is I will eventually reap to the flesh. And what he says in verse 15 is that whenever Desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death, always and continually. Now, the good news is, for those that sow to the Spirit, we will reap in the Spirit. Verse 17 says, for every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. Sowing to the Spirit looks like life as opposed to sowing to the flesh. 
And every good and perfect thing that we have in our life, every good thing, I'm going to repeat this for effect, every good thing you have in your life is a gift from God. It is not from our own production. It is not something we did and conjured up for ourselves. It is not because I worked so hard, tried so hard, did such a good job, pat me on the back. My flesh wants to take credit for this over and over and over again, and it's not so. Every gift that we have, every good thing that is in our life is because of the grace of God, not because we're so good. And it's important to remember it's humbling for us. And then he calls him the father of lights. I love this name for God because what we see is this desire of God to actually expose every bit of darkness, every nook and every cranny and every crevice and all the things that I wish I could hide in the corner and not talk about and not bring up what God is determined to do as the father of lights is to shine a light on that. But it's important to note it's not because he hates me or he doesn't like me or he doesn't love me. It's actually because he loves me so much he doesn't want that to come back and kill me. And so the Father of lights continually is exposing these dark things in our life for us to be able to have an opportunity to deal with them. He continues in verse 17, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creation. God is good, but he is also goodness personified. We say this God is good all the time. Do you understand? He is actually the personification of goodness. It is his very nature. That is who he is. And so uh, Exodus chapter 33, in this spot, Moses desperately wants to see God and see the glory of God. And he's crying out to the Lord, would you please just show me your glory? And in Exodus thirty-three nineteen, and he, God said, I will make my, you can underline it, goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God's personification is goodness. And what he has to say about himself, go to the next chapter when he actually passes by Moses, who's there in the cleft of the rock, in chapter 34, verse 6, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, God, Elohim, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and in truth. What does God have to say about his own character? He is good. He is gracious. He is merciful. He is patience. Yahweh, Yahweh, I am that I am. Fill in the blank. Whatever you need, that is what he is in the moment you need him. And what he refers to himself as is, I am merciful. I am gracious. I am patient with you. And yet, over and over again, I am so much the opposite. You see, what James is sharing with with us here is that there is no variation in God. He cannot vary from his character. Me, I vary all the time. I'm this way, I'm that way. I flip-flop, I change my mind. I mean, I flip-flop on decisions more than Al Gore trying to figure out climate control. I'm over here, over there, I don't know, right? I'm a flip-flopper, but God is not. There is no 
change in his character. In fact, when we read the Old Testament, oftentimes we can look at it and go, man, he's a God of judgment. I like the New Testament God better than that Old Testament. He's always judging people. But do you understand what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 21, is that judgment is his strange work. Our King James, our new King James says his unusual work. It is outside of his character to judge. He does not want that any should perish, but that all should have everlasting life. That's his actual desire, not to judge. That's the reason he's so long-suffering, so patient with us. Many times, especially in the church, we raise up our fists and we go, why won't God judge? It's because he loves us. And by the way, I, for one, am thankful for his patience. I am thankful that he is long-suffering. Because the reality is, if he wouldn't have been just not that many years ago, I don't make the cut, folks. I don't get to go be with Jesus. And so I'm thankful for his patience. I'm thankful that he takes his time with me. That he is gracious to me. I would encourage you to do the same. Don't shake your fist and ask God, why don't you judge? The reality is it's because he loves us so much. He wants us to have time to turn. Would you please turn? Now, he, we are called here in James in this verse, the, the first fruits of his create creatures. This takes us back to when Paul says that Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection. Now, I love that because what we know through our studies is in Leviticus chapter 23, here's all these feasts and festivals. I don't have time to go through them all, but Jesus is the fulfillment of each one of those, by the way. I'd encourage you to do a, a little bit of homework on that. But what you'll find is as he raised himself from the dead on that beautiful Sunday morning, it was the first, it was the festival of first fruits. <laughs> the first fruits of the resurrection raised himself during the very feast that he fulfilled. And so he has now brought us along as a kind of first fruits of the resurrection. We got to come along before the big harvest is finally fulfilled and completed. And so we are first fruits. It's a beautiful phrase for us. Now, verse 19 So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so here, remember, he's writing. To these people who have been kicked out of their home, they've been run off, some of their family have been killed, their friends have been martyred, and what he reminds them of is, uh, God is good. God is good. And he still loves you very much as you're out there, and yet our initial response is almost always, when we're being persecuted, to be cynical, to be quick, to be upset, to complain to the Lord. But what we're reminded of in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, this is highlighter worthy, if you've not already got it highlighted, is that he works out all things to the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. For we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and of those who are called according to his purpose. So the reality is for us as believers, if it's not good, it's because He's not finished yet. He's in the midst of a work. He's in the midst of bringing us through this. And what he has given us, and I, I love this. This is not from the Bible, but nevertheless, it, it holds true. We have uh, been given two ears and one mouth. I suggest you use them in proportion to one another. 
We should do a whole lot more listening and a whole lot less talking or complaining to the Lord. But for me, I, I know when I read these verses, I find that I am typically slow to hear, uh, I am quick to speak, and I am very quick to wrath. I am ready to lay some wrath down on somebody that crosses my path. But the Lord has commanded me to do the exact opposite. And even when we're listening, I find that so often when we are listening to someone, we are typically listening to respond, not to understand. I would encourage you as you're in conversations with one another, listen to understand instead of listening to respond. Many times I'm building my case as I'm listening or I'm building the words that I want to spew out all over you because I've got a great story that goes right along with that. When so many times when you really get to know someone, it's when you ask not the first question, but the second question. Can you get two questions deep with someone? When you say, how are you? And they say, I'm good. How about you? Good. And then we move on. Are you really good today? What's so good about today? What's God been up to today for you? And when you ask that second question, what you'll really start to do is begin to understand what's happening in that person's life. They will begin to open up and share with you. And we are to be slow then to wrath as well. And especially, this is important because, again, we are so quick-tempered. We want to go back to the Old Testament. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You grew up where I grew up. If you knock out one of my teeth, uh, I'm going to smash your whole face in. That's typically the way we dole out judgment. This is what wrath looks like, right? The reason that the Lord says vengeance is mine is because I'm not actually capable of handing out wrath. I'm not, I'm not capable of handing it out. I think that I am. I think I can do a pretty good job but I never one time am doing it in kindness. I'm never one time able to do it in a measured way, and I'm always taking an extra pound of flesh with me when I do it. This is why the Lord says, leave wrath to me. Leave vengeance to me. Now, verse 21, Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. And so uh, James starts off by saying, therefore, and you guys remember through our studies, anytime we read the word therefore, we have to ask ourselves, what is it there for? And it refers us back to the previous section of scripture where James is talking about being quick to hear. Therefore, if you desire to hear from the Lord, you need to lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Many times we wonder, why can I not hear from the Lord? I desire to hear from the Lord. Why do I not hear from Him? Well, here's a few reasons. Uh, first of all, maybe your ears are plugged up. Maybe your ears are plugged up. With what? Well, he gives us a couple examples. He says, uh, filthiness or an overflow of wickedness. For any of you King James fans, I love that translation. It's a superfluity of naughtiness. For, for any of you that have a superfluity of naughtiness, Literally an overflowing of naughtiness in our life that oftentimes what we allow in, the things that we let into our head, what we listen to from music or TV or whatever we have going on in our life, when I allow these things in, if it's ahead of the Word of God, it can plug up my ears. And so many times this is the case. We want to hear from the Lord, but our ears are all plugged up. Or secondly, our mind is already made up. 
If our ears aren't plugged up, often I can come to the Lord and my mind is already made up. I've got my agenda, I've got my plan, and now I'm presenting it to the Lord and I'm asking him to bless it. Lord, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this and this and this. Would you please bless it, Father? Protect me as I go. And then I take off on my merry way because my mind is already made up. And so to contend with a mind being made up, what James says is receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. If I want to hear from the Lord, I need to not have my mind made up, but instead to approach the word of God with meekness. Lord, what is it that you would have for me in this today? I know I've got my plans. You know about all of them. But Father, where would you have me go? Who would you have me talk to? How would you have me to act as I go about my day? And so to receive the word of God with meekness and not my own agenda. Now verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of a man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this is one who will be blessed in what he does. So perhaps the reason that you're not hearing from the Lord is because your ears are uh, clogged up, or maybe it's because you've got your mind made up, or perhaps it's because you're all mixed up. And what we see is so often we can read the Word of God, we can see what it says, and yet, you know what we don't do? Um, obey it. Or even better, we can go and we can hear this awesome, dynamic, powerful message. Probably not here, probably someplace else. But when you're in that other place and you hear that really dynamic message, you're like, yeah, go Jesus. And then I go out and what really changed in my life? Did anything change along the way? Did I make a decision to actually change a single thing in my life? I continue on like normal. So what good was that tremendous message? Or even better yet, the Lord puts it on my heart. I'm reading through scripture and I feel like God is calling me to pray more or pray at all. Yes, Lord. Yes, I should pray more. And then I proceed to not pray. Here's what the Lord would like you to do. And you can write this down. I thought this up all by myself. Um, when you get a word from the Lord or he's put something on your heart, um, what you should do is do it. Do it. If the Lord put it on your heart to pray, pray. If the Lord puts it on your heart to worship, I feel like God is saying I should be more worshipful than what I would say you should probably do is actually worship. Doing is really what the Lord has got in mind. And so we get all these things on our heart and on our minds, and yet we do not obey because we think it's the four-letter word of the New Testament. Obey is not. It is the simple overflowing of what God has done in my heart. Do it now. So many times we can have paralysis by analysis. What if this isn't what God would want? What if this isn't the exact way? Just do it. Just go and see what God can do with that. He can deal with all the other stuff. Just obey. And so what he desires for us is to be people that are unclogged, that are meek, and that are obedient. Now verse 25. 
5, verse 26. Everybody's saying, thank the Lord we moved on from there. Verse 26, if anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. And so if you want to know what wisdom looks like, it's a bridled tongue. We need to be people that have a bridle on our tongue. So many times it gets us in trouble. And it's important even as we're addressing the Lord. I have heard people say before, look, when you're approaching God, if you're angry at God and you want to shake your fist and tell him how mad you are at God, go ahead and do it. I would tell you to take a back seat maybe on that one. Remember, um, he is God. You are not. Not even close. Remember who we're talking to. Have a bridle on our tongue. Approach him as our heavenly father. He wants to hear from us, but not so that we can curse and stamp our feet and yell at God. But it's important to note as we look at this, that Christianity is not a religion. That's going to have some of you rankled just a little bit. That's going to work a few up. Christianity is not a religion. You see, what religion is, at its very root, it means to relink. We have this desire to relink. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says that we've got eternity actually in our hearts. And so we know that we're a broken creation. And we have this desire to relink. It's that question that gets asked. That, Isn't there something more? There's got to be something better. What, what is this all about? What is the meaning of life? And so we have these questions and this desire to relink. And what religion is, is finite man's desire to link up to an infinite God. And it's an impossible task. It's one that no amount of rule or regulation or planning or plotting could ever do. But what Christianity is, is it's actually an infinite God who poured himself into a man to link up with us. That is the work of Jesus Christ. Christianity is an infinite God pouring himself into a man to link up with us. Maybe a better way to put it is that the Son of God came down as the Son of Man so that sons of men could become the Son of God. The Son of God came down as the Son of Man so that sons of men could become sons of God. This is the work of Jesus. Now, for many people, as Jesus was sharing these teachings and trying to show that he has actually come down to reconnect, to relink, he is the one who's come down to do this. Their natural question, their inclination is, what should we do? This sounds great. What can we do what they were trying to do is formulate a religion. And John chapter 6 is where I'm going to go as we head to a close here. John chapter 6, verse 28. And then they said to him, speaking to Jesus, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? That's religion. What can we do that we can do the works of God? And look at Jesus' answer. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him and whom he sent. Simple belief. That's it. That's the secret. All these questions, all this, what is this all about? It is simple 
belief because he never desired a religion or religious program. What Jesus always desired, what God desired from the foundation of the earth is a relationship. He desired to enter into a relationship with you and I, one-on-one, personal and private, to be a part of your everyday life. This is what he actually desires to do. And what Jesus came to do is to repair that. That connection that had been broken, what he came to do was repair it. He's in the repair business, the relationship repair business. And as he's repaired our broken relationship, what happens, the natural outflow of that is I desire to share it with others. As I realize how much he did for me, how much he gave up for me, how, how much he walked away from and poured himself into a man to lay aside for me that natural relationship, that natural inclination is, who can I share with? How can I go out and share this good news, this gospel with others? And what James brings us back to is, here's a place to start. Go to orphans and go to widows. Why did James start there? Because maybe no group of people, no brokenness more than orphans and widows. Widows, knowing what it's like to be linked to a mate for what was supposed to be their whole life and then left. This, is, this thing is broken. I've been walked away from. I've, I've lost my life partner. And so to go to that one and say, let me come alongside you, widow. You know all about brokenness. I want to introduce you to one who can repair broken relationships. And even more so, the orphans. The ones who know better than anyone else, and unless you've been there, and I thankfully have not, but unless you've been there, you don't know the pain of what it feels like for the very people who are supposed to love you completely and totally, and then they walk away from you, and they give you up. That is a breaking that is deeper than what we understand or realize. I'm confronted with that one a lot. But until you can come alongside and say, let me tell you, I may not know what it feels like to be an orphan, but I can tell you about one who knows how to fix it. He is one that fixes and mends relationships. The widows and the orphans, that's the reason the Lord has put them specifically for us. But there are many in your life right now today. There are people right now, I believe, for each of you that God has put on your heart and there's a broken relationship there. There is something that has been broken and he has placed them in your path. And what you can do, the work that James is talking about, what you can do is put them in touch with the one who can fix broken relationships. Christ and him alone. Introduce them to the Jesus that has fixed your relationship and is in the midst of fixing relationships in your life. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you for being a relationship repairman, for being one that restores us completely and wholly from the inside out. Lord, help us as we get our hearts prepared to take communion. Lord, help us to be able to reflect upon the brokenness that you endured so that we could be repaired. Help us to be able to reflect upon 
how much you have done for us on our behalf so that we can share that goodness, your goodness with others. Father, put that upon our hearts today so that we can have enough faith to be able to step into those situations, not by ourselves, not alone, but as a family, as a group, come alongside one another, bearing each other's burdens, to be able to help as we walk down those paths together, Lord. Thank you so much for this family. Thank you for the way that you are carving us out and giving us a word, Lord. Help us to unclog our ears and stop coming to you with an agenda and stop being all mixed up and telling you what we're going to do and how we're going to do it, but to instead just obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way. And so we thank you, Jesus, and we praise you in your precious name. Amen. If you would like to, as Jake and Michaela come forward and take of the elements, and you can bring them back either by yourself or for your family, we'll all observe communion together after this song.